You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Greg, Michael Rota is not a household name, but few guitarists in rock history have broken as much ground as the co-founder of Noi. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. Jim and I will talk to the pioneering German art rocker about his innovative sound. Plus, we're going to review new albums by Swedish pop singer Robin and American indie rockers Superchunk. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. The part is over. It's time to call it a day They've burst your pretty balloon And taken the moon away Bad news for the record industry this week, Jim. Digital sales, which they've been counting upon to make up for the humongous loss in CD sales over the last decade. Remember, the CD sales are down over 50% since the digital era started. Well, those digital sales, which had been climbing steadily over the last few years, a major increase in 2008, 28%, followed by a 13% increase last year. Well, for the first half of 2010, the news is not good. Those sales have flattened off. For the first time, we have seen a potential a stagnation of the digital sales market. And basically what the consumer experts on this are saying is that a lot of people have now replaced a lot of their musical content with the all the MP3 files they're ever going to need. Those iPods are loaded up. Yeah. There's no real incentive to go out there and buy more stuff. The news from Europe is a little bit better. They've had increases in the UK, France, and Germany. But overall, the U.S. makes up such a huge chunk of the world market in music sales that this is really disconcerting news for the music industry. Well, you know, the digital sales had been the one bright spot, as you said. In any examinations of sales numbers, though, what always strikes me is there's never any consideration of, gee, maybe we didn't have a lot of just great superstar albums this year. You know what I mean? And speaking of superstar albums, Lil Wayne has put out his new album, I Am Not a Human Being, digitally for two weeks before issuing any physical product. Wayne, I will remind you, is serving a year in that New York country club known as (laughs) Rikers Island for a gun possession charge. Now, he's always been a pioneer in terms of digital releases. He's been putting stuff out on the net with all the mixtapes that really put him on the map. Mm -hmm. But the big studio releases, the major label releases, have gone digital and physical at the same time. The brick-and-mortar retailers, those of them that are left in this shrinking world, are upset. They would at least like to get physical product on the same day as the digital download goes up for sale. Having to wait two weeks, they're saying, you know, people are not even going to care about physical product after that long if they've already downloaded the record. And they still are banking on some fans wanting to actually own the CD and revel in all the wonderful artwork. 
Not only did Wayne tick off the brick-and-mortar salespeople, he shot himself in the foot because by only releasing the album digitally, he shaved enough sales off of his record to deny himself the number one spot on the Billboard Albums chart. And the number crunchers have done it and said, you know, if they both came out at the same time, you, you would have been number one. So it's an odd thing, but Wayne seems to believe the future is 100% selling music online. Islands in the stream, that is what we are. How can we be wrong, sailing with me to another world, and we rely on each other, uh-huh, from one love to another, uh-huh. You know, Greg, once upon a time when radio was the only media that played music, and I suppose television, calculating royalties for music played in those two forums was fairly simple. Now it's become incredibly complicated, especially when we're talking about streaming music. On sites such as Yahoo and Real Networks, AOL, YouTube, Pandora, a federal appeals court has just ruled that an earlier court decision saying streaming audio should be paying royalties at the same rate that radio does is wrong, that this is a much more complicated world of streaming audio on the internet, on websites, than it is on radio or television. The issue here was that Real Network and Yahoo were involved in a lawsuit with ASCAP, one of the two major performers rights royalty collection agencies in the United States. BMI is the other. ASCAP was saying that any streaming audio coming off of a website should be paying 2.5% royalty rate. That would include the part of the royalty that's for the copyright of the song, nobody's saying that shouldn't be paid, but also a performance fee that any time audio streams off of a website, that constitute those artists having performed it, and therefore you should pay us more. The courts have turned that over. They said, look, it's really complicated. It's an interesting example of the courts recognizing a level of complexity for right. once. Usually they don't understand. They're saying it's more complicated than that. If you just click on a website and there's background music, that shouldn't have a performance royalty. If you're going to a particular website to specifically download a performer's new song, yes, perhaps it should. But in any event, they kicked it back to the lower courts to decide a more complicated and equitable royalty formula. There is no doubt that these collection agencies, ASCAP and BMI, are going after every revenue stream they can. Just a few weeks ago on the show, we had John Bow of the New York Times talking about the efforts of these agencies to start putting some money in the pockets of artists as CD sales are plummeting. This is a significant ruling. I think there's no doubt about it. Had it gone the other way, I see two potential scenarios. One, some of these sites have to start charging for people to listen to streams, or they put a whole lot less music out there available to consumers, and neither one of those scenarios would have been good for the average music fan. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is a track from Noi 75 called Issy. Noi, the great German art rock band spelled N-E-U. Exclamation point. Exactly. Three hugely influential albums in the early 70s. Part of that great wave of German art rock alongside bands like Can and Kraftwerk. Noi was right there with them, one of the most influential bands of all time. Uh, basically two guys, Michael Rota and Klaus Dinger. 
created a new form of stripped-down, minimalist music that had huge influence over the next three decades. Uh, just grew exponentially in terms of the number of bands that were name-checking this duo as time went on. Rota went on to have a very solid career with a group called Harmonia in Germany in the late 70s and onward, and then a solo career after that. But the real news here is that Noi is back bigger than ever in a lot of ways, Jim. Absolutely, Greg. There's been a wonderful box set rounding up those original recordings all in one place and one time. For years and years, you really had a search to find that music on CD or on vinyl. And... Rota has put together a new version of Noi, essentially. They're calling it Hallow Gallo 2010, after one of Noi's most famous tracks. Steve Shelley is on drums, in place of Klaus Dinger, who died two years ago, and Aaron Mullen on second guitar. But it's really all about Rota playing that guitar that we've come to know and love for decades. We started our conversation with Michael Rota by asking about the origin of that incredible sound. There were several roots of the music we started in the late 60s, early 70s. For me, it was actually to steer away from everything. That was my idea, to disconnect from the past, to disconnect from my musical past. And um, it's up to you, actually, to, to show or to pinpoint the, the listeners to the, the similarities, I guess. I, I'd like to... I always like to focus on the differences because mm. the idea was to create a music that was different from everything that happened in Germany, just as much as it was my aim to be different from American or English music. Different in what ways? What didn't you want to be? Maybe the other way around. When I started, I copied other musicians. Like when I was 15, 16, that was my aim to be just as similar to the Beatles, Rolling Stones, King, Slater, Eric Clapton, Cream, Jimi Hendrix. That was, the, the, the in the beginning, the idea, just to be as, you know, to sound just as similar as possible. And then it was, the next thing was to be as different. So um, I stopped playing guitar solos. I just left that behind and the blues and everything. And then from then on, it was just looking forward, not backwards anymore, and to try and create my own music, more or less from scratch, you know, going back to one note, one harmony and one mm. idea. Keep it simple. That was very important. Simplicity at a time of excess in rock and roll. We were getting 20-minute drum solos. We were getting, you know, triple concept albums. And you were going in the other direction. Let's see how much we can take away and, and still have something to say musically. Yeah. I mean, uh, I stopped listening to that kind of music anyway in the, I think, the early 70s, like 1970. Mm. That was necessary to, in order to focus on my own music. You, you talked about, too, I mean, you grew up in Germany, obviously, but you spent some time in Pakistan, right, as, as a right. child. And how did that influence your musical thinking? It's difficult to to really explain. I just have, I can guess because I remember being completely thrilled listening to that music when I was 9, 10, and 11, and 12. This idea of a music that just goes, keeps on going, you know, repetition and endlessness, that was the idea of that music. And I guess that's something I still have in my system. Mm-hmm. 
My mother played classical piano. I think that's still deep down in my system and uh, that's my idea of melody and harmony. So I guess there are several rivers going into my music and the Indian Arabian music still I still love it and um, I think that is a, an important factor. You said you were coming to this realization that you wanted to be unlike everything else that you'd been hearing, strip away those influences. And there was this tremendous surge of, of great music that came out of Germany beginning in the late 60s, certainly by the early 70s, there were all of these bands. Did you feel like you were surrounded by people, like-minded people uh, at a certain point? Or how did that come about that you were able to find collaborators? That happened by chance, actually, in my case. Um because I, I stumbled into the Kraftwerk studio one day. It was a guitar player. He had an invitation to go to this studio in Dusseldorf to do some film music, and he asked me, would you like to come along? The, the band is called Kraftwerk, and I thought, that's a funny name. <laughs> Hadn't heard of them. And so I just joined him, and I ended up jamming with Ralf Fütter of Kraftwerk and discovering that there was actually another musician on that same way, the European-based harmony, melody style, no blues. And uh, that's where when I got connected to the people. Klaus Dinger was in the studio, Florian Schneider was listening, and a few weeks later, Florian Schneider asked me to join the band. And so it was by pure chance that I got into contact with people. Before that, I was I felt completely alone mm. on my way. And then later, of course, with Kraftwerk, I met Connie Planck, the producer, sound engineer. Very important factor for all of us, for Kraftwerk, for Neu, for Harmonia, for my solo albums. And um, I met Ken. I asked Jackie Liebezeit, the great drummer of Cannes, to play on my first solo albums, which I think was a very good decision. And yeah, You know, as a drummer, I have to inject, Michael, that you have played probably with two of my favorite drummers uh, ever, Jackie Leipzig and Klaus Dinger, and then there's like John Bonham from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> but wow, I mean, you know, I don't, what was it about your style that worked so well with these talented and creative drummers? When we played with Kraftwerk, we did, I think, two shows with Cannes, so we were in touch. And I knew that great album with the track You Do Right, which still fascinates me today. You made a believer out of me, she said. Uh, when 
I played at Dockville in Germany a few weeks ago. We were asked to DJ one evening mm. and I played that track and I hadn't heard it for a long time. It's so amazing the way Jackie Leavitt drums there and that magical surge that is created. And when I started um, thinking about doing a, a solo album, my first solo album in 76, I just asked Jackie. I had some some sketches on a, a te cassette tape, very simple, and I played that to first to Connie and then also to Jackie and both heard something, I guess. And mm. they, so Jackie said, yeah, let's do it. And so that's how the collaboration came about. And Jackie is also one of my two favorite drummers. <laughs> we, should, we should talk a little bit about the whole Kraftwerk experience because you, you were in that band uh, at, at the ground floor. I mean, they were just started, starting to develop these ideas that, you know, a lot of people say they're the godfathers of electronic music in a lot of ways, influencing Detroit techno and Chicago house music. It's been said that what Chuck Berry did for the electric guitar, you know, Florian and Ralph did for the Moog. Mm-hmm. So what was it like in, in, the, in those early days with the group, and what prompted you to move on shortly thereafter? Well, it was exciting to, to make that music in 1971 with Florian Schneider and Klaus Stinger. Actually, it only worked uh, in the live environment. We tried to record the second Kraftwerk album in that lineup with Connie Plank, but we somehow didn't manage to recreate that excitement um, in that sterile atmosphere in the studio. So, I mean, it was we had very good nights, but there was also a lot of fighting going on, personal struggles uh, with those two very spiky characters, <laughs> Klaus Dinger and Florian, and I didn't enjoy that part that much. And so after, after we um, realized that we weren't going to record, finish recording the Kraftwerk album, second Kraftwerk album, Klaus Stinger and I decided to go along on our own. I mean, it was just an experiment. Nobody could guarantee that it would work. I guess we were lucky to finish the first Neu album the way we did. There were many lucky circumstances involved. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we're going to continue our conversation with Michael Rota of Noi. Later on, Jim and I are going to review the first album in almost a decade by indie rock stalwarts Superchunk.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. The song you're hearing, Wiebenzi, was composed by our guest Michael Rota on the incredibly influential debut album by his German duo, Noi. That self-titled album has gone on to influence a whole slew of artists. We're talking about Brian Eno, David Bowie, Stereolab, Sonic Youth, Wilco, the list goes on and on. And they're continuing to provide inspiration for a lot of bands today. When Michael was with us in the studio recently, I asked him about what he and bandmate Klaus Dinger intended with that landmark release. Well, you recorded that album in four days. That's, that's the story. It came out in 1972. You only changed the course of rock music with that record. <laughs> Ever since then, people have been referencing it. Did you and Klaus have an idea uh, going in of what kind of music, what kind of sound the two of you would make together? It was basically you and Klaus Dinger and Connie Plank as the producer. Uh, we never talked that much. You know, before we went into the studio, I, I remember, I mean, it's a long time ago, maybe memory fails me, but <laughs> mm-hmm. you have to take into account that we didn't have any possibility of rehearsing the music before we went into the studio. We Nobody had a multi-track machine at home. And so it was just up to our imagination. And um, like we had a, an idea, a vision of a music we wanted to create, but the exact sound that happened in the studio and um, the most important elements came together in the studio. And that was working like two action painters. That's a picture I like to create. It was listening to the, what happened, what came out of the speakers, what was collected, and some of the most important factors, like the feedback I suddenly had on my guitar, they were so important for Hello Gallo to sound the way it ended up. So we had to move so fast, and we were lucky that we got those elements together, which Connie Plank, in his great way, showed. I mean, he was much more experienced. We had no a studio experience, Klaus and I, and we relied on his expertise on the first album. Talking to Michael Rota here at Sound Opinions. Michael, tell us a little bit about how the track Hallow Gallo came together. It, it is the first track on the first Noi album, an iconic piece of music. Do you recall how it actually came together in the studio? Well, I think the source was our life experience as Kraftwerk. So when Klaus and I started recording the, no- the first Noi album, it was this idea of one track in E. <laughs> the favorite um, <laughs> harmony for guitarists, at least for me. And um, I played guitar and Klaus played the drums. So that was the backing track, the backing tracks. And we just went on for maybe 11 minutes. And then um, I went into the recording room, added another melody and another melody. And Klaus played some quack, 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 the quack, quack, quack guitar. Mm-hmm. And then Connie turned around the tape and that suddenly 
that changed it completely because um, this, I love backwards music, backward slowed down music, especially and backwards sounding music, and that inspired me to respond to that, react to that uh, new sound, that new situation. And so when the tape was turned around again, that was um, the result was that orchestra of guitars. I think Hello Gallo is uh, one a very good example because there's nothing in that song that could be taken away. You know, it's really stripped down. And if you, if one of those elements was missing, I guess the whole track would fall apart. And maybe that's uh, one of the reasons why it works so well. The magic. I guess there's really so much that cannot be explained. I'm just talking about how the instruments were added, but. It doesn't really explain the magic, the feeling you get. Was uh, Dinger as a drummer, Michael? Is that what he did? You know, I mean, Jockey Leipzig, a jazz virtuoso, can play very complex things, or could play one floor tom beat, you know, for twenty minutes. It, it's been called, I think, again, this was the English press calling it motorique. You know, this idea of the sound of the white line coming at you down the highway. Was that an ele- elemental part of noise sound from the beginning? That hypnotic repetitive rhythm? Well, that was the style which Klaus preferred to play. Mm. It reflected his powerful personality. He was so determined and um, I mean in later years this strength this um, what is it thick-headedness is that an expression mm-hmm. became a problem but on the musical level and in the early stages that was was so amazing to see Klaus play drums live yeah. I had never experienced a drummer with that power before think of the shots of you two in the uh, gatefold of Noise 75, the third album, you are pictured bearded, long-haired, kind of against a, a pillowy backdrop of clouds. And then there's Klaus, you know, who has this spiky hair, this sneer, this sn- He looks like Sid Vicious, but it's 1975. It's three years before we'd meet Sid Vicious. And it's kind of like, wow, sweet and sour. Okay, I get it. <laughs> Hard and soft is like these guys completed each other. Yeah, we were very different. I mean, on the musical level, we didn't fight. That's something I, I always have to explain because people, most people think that there was a huge struggle going on in the studio, but that wasn't the case. It, we both knew of the talents, uh, the, you know, the, what the other could bring in, and we both had this vision of the sum of those talents. And it was just outside the studio, actually, that the fighting started and... Um, we were not friends. I didn't want to be around Klaus more than or outside of the studio, but 
when whenever we did, did music together, that was it just worked so well. So Noi, the first album, N E U exclamation point underline comes out. That's the, the only thing on the cover. Sells thirty five thousand copies in Germany on on Brain Records. Is picked up by a Chicago label. Sells nothing. Nor would the second album. You guys had the chance to because there'd been some success in Germany to go back into the studio. Now, this is one of those stories that may be apocryphal. You started recording, you recorded several tracks, but it took too long, so you took both sides of a single you'd issued, and then the second side of that second album is those songs at 45, 78, and 33 to fill out the... Is that, is that, is that really how it happened? Yes, more or less. Truth is, when we went into the studio, we had nothing on our minds. It was just sheer desperation because it was the situation that we, that was the first album we recorded on 16 track, and which made me add more layers of guitar and then mm. another piano and then a backwards piano. And it just took too long. And, um, <laughs> the time's running out. <laughs> yes. And we, we 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 paid the studio out of our own pockets, so we had limited studio time. There was no possibility of just adding another week. And so there we were uh, with just one more night of studio time and only one side of music, 20 minutes or 20 plus of music. And so we had to find a solution, and Klaus was the one who actually... He didn't care so much about what people thought. Mm. I was maybe the one who was more into experimentation than Klaus. That was the funny th side of it. He started it. I thought, wow, the people will hate us for this, <laughs> 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 which actually uh, critics and fans did at the time. We got a, quite a lot of beating for the second side of Noi too. Mm. But nowadays, the situation has changed. We get a lot of praise, although I must admit I can't listen to those the needle scratch, you know, yeah, it, it yeah. turns my stomach up, up upside <laughs> down. But it wasn't that far off. You're, you're working with Connie in the first place and turning the tape backwards and speeding it up and slowing it down. And, you know, we can look at it as postmodernists and say you were giving us a window into the way you were working anyway. Yeah, but the, the rough edges, I mean, that, that, <laughs> yeah, they are really right. rough. Klaus right. kicked the, the turntable and the needle jumped and... That's so vicious. <laughs> it's one way to do a remix, right? There you go. Yeah, well, Klaus was a guy like that. I mean, he... He was so radical, and I just had to agree because I had no other plan. And in the end, uh, we had this album, and the record company just were... I, I think they, they thought we were crazy. Well, it doesn't help to have the same cover again, different colors, but same thing. <laughs> N-E-U, exclamation point, same one as the first, but mm -hmm. different colors. We didn't discuss anything with the record company anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the album, take it. Commercialism was not high on the list, huh? Uh, I'm not sure if... if being rich was the first thing that was on my mind. I wanted to create music to be, I don't know, to, to express myself in music. I don't think that I wanted to be unsuccessful, 
but it, you know the order of the thoughts was different first it was the music and then let's see what happens the same was true for harmonia i was just as enthusiastic about harmonia's music as i was for noi and noi sold i don't know 10 times as much albums and mm. harmonia was such a disaster commercial disaster only <laughs> commercial disaster and it took about th 30 years for audience to catch up with the music harmonia did It was difficult for you to play live, too, it sounded like, with, with Noi. I mean, not only were these studio records kind of experiments in themselves, the, the live performance was, was fairly limited, which may explain why the band didn't get a wider audience at a, at a certain point. Maybe, yeah. We tried. We, we, in 1972, we did, I think, seven concerts. And uh, in the end, we just had to re uh, accept that we were not successful in transporting, transferring the music from the studio onto stage. But then maybe it's uh, it's understandable because it was a highly individual music. That's what we wanted to do. It was uh, logical that we couldn't find any musicians to play with us. We tried two musicians, but in the end, uh, we just gave up. Actually, that led to the the to the forming of Harmonia when I went to visit Rodelius and Möbius um, to find out whether they could help us put Neu on stage for a tour. We, we were invited to do a tour in the UK. Mm -hmm. So in 1973, I visited those guys and jammed with Rodelius and suddenly got very excited about the music we could create. So they would become recognized as pioneers of ambient music. Brian Eno was huge fans of those guys. Uh, much of what he would do later on his so-called ambient albums was influenced by them. But it was a left turn. You know, instead of the power of Noi, you were making a very different kind of sound now with Harmonia. I think that was just an extension of my ideas. You know, it's um, even we we even had the idea of combining those two elements. Mm. We, uh, Klaus came to Forst and um, I think he was a bit upset that I left Dusseldorf, but it was for me it was so important to develop that area of sound and repetition. And it was, I think it was more detailed than Neu. But then at that time, Klaus was already becoming a bit more difficult. Mm. <laughs> he, he was on, on a star, what do you call star trip. Yeah, yeah. And... He behaved so badly that our girlfriends just hated him. <laughs> and everybody felt so unhappy, and so it didn't work out. But it's hard to be a star when you're selling 30,000 records. Well, Klaus wasn't satisfied with that. Uh, I mean, I was probably always much more satisfied with that, mm -hmm. with the reception we got and the recognition we got. That became a big problem for Klaus in later years. Is it ironic, then, that, that all these years later... I mean, it, it started... Pretty soon, you know, you had people like Brian Eno and David Bowie talking about Noi in the mid-70s. During the punk explosion, you would have bands like Perubu in Cleveland. And uh, I, I saw an interview with John Lydon, Johnny Rotten once mentioned Noi. 
you know, but today when you're touring with the drummer of Sonic Youth, you are cited by Stereolab. You're, you're, all these bands kind of talk about it. Do you ever feel like, well, you know, it's nice 30 years later, but where were you back then? I knew about Brian. You know, he, you know, he came to a Harmonia concert in 1974, and he, he told us that he and uh, David Bowie were exchanging thoughts about our music. They, they knew everything. So that was the first time I became aware of other musicians listening to our music. But then I guess there was a big gap. And in the 80s, Noi was gone more or less from the surface. It, it vanished. The, the record company didn't do any pressings. And we were very much disconnected. That was the time before internet arrived. And mm. You had no idea what was happening on, on the other side of the Atlantic. We want to thank Michael Rota of Neu, Harmonia, etc., many great German bands, for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Michael, thank you for being here. Thank you. Comment on our conversation about Noi or anything under the rock and roll sun, call 888-859-1800 and we'll try to put it on the air. Greg and I will be back with reviews of the new records by dance pop artist Robin and North Carolina indie rockers Superchunk. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is the Swedish artist Robin with a song from her new album, Body Talk Part 2, called Hang With Me. 
Robin Miriam Carlson, a Swedish artist, came up in the uh, mid-90s when she was only a teenager. She was part of the European wing of that teen pop invasion of the latter part of the 90s. Had a number of hits for RCA and Jive in the UK and the US. But then in 2004, decided to go independent. Formed her own label, has been making much edgier electropop that has made her a darling of the underground press in the years since then. She was one of the headliners at the Pitchfork Music Festival last summer in Chicago, for example. She's in the midst of a three-part release, Body Talk 1, Body Talk 2, and Body Talk 3, coming out later this year. Three eight-song EPs is what she's got on the schedule. She had a major hit from the first one called Dancing on My Own earlier this summer. Now Body Talk Part 2 is out. Let's play a track from it before we review it. It's called In My Eyes from Robin on Sound Opinions. That is In My Eyes from Robin's new Body Talk Part 2 on Sound Opinions. Greg, an extraordinary effort. 
I don't really buy that these are EPs, that they're eight songs long, and, and the tracks uh, often are pretty lengthy, long groovers for the dance floor. It feels like a full album. There's nothing unsatisfying about this. And if she's this good, two records into the trilogy, I'm really waiting for the third. The thing about Robin that really appeals to me is, as you said, she's been doing this since she was 13 years old. She's 31 now. She brings a maturity and a perspective to the world of Euro disco dance pop that I think a lot of other people lack. You know, MIA really knows her grooves. Lady Gaga is doing the whole Euro disco thing with the whole celebrity spoof weirdness on top of it. Robin does all of that stuff and more. She takes no guff from anyone. She's proud to be a woman. She's very sexual, but she doesn't ever address that in a pandering way like so many other people in this genre do. And she's experimenting musically. A lot of really radical stuff here rarely makes a wrong turn. I'll tell you how good this record is. There's a track called You Should Know Better, which we can't play because there's some nasty words, that has the obligatory Snoop Dogg cameo, (laughs) and even that is beginning to end brilliant. I love every song of these eight songs on this EP. I love the last record. I think Robin can do no wrong. On the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, this is a Buy It record. Well, she's on a roll, Jim, and I think you hit something because she's making pop music with uh, unusual smarts. Pop music doesn't have to be dumb. Take a note, Katy Perry. <laughs> you, you, you can make music that appeals to the higher intelligence, you know, and still keep it pop, keep it danceable, keep it fun. She's doing that. There's there's verve here. There's beats, obviously. And then she goes to a track like Indestructible, which is basically just her voice with a string section backing it up. Really beautiful stuff. Very versatile. And I never was smart with love. I let the bad If anything could be said about this record, it's a little bit more beats-oriented, not quite as pop-savvy as maybe the first EP. As I said, Dancing on My Own is one of the hits of the year. I don't hear anything quite as catchy as that on this second EP. But otherwise, this is wonderful stuff, and she's well on her way to making a three-part series of EPs or albums or whatever you want to call them that are as good as anything in the dance-pop world that's going to come out this year. So I'll buy it all the way for Robin. That is my Gap Feels Weird on Sound Opinions from the band Superchunk out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina on their new album, Majesty Shredding. Greg, I don't think any band really symbolized the indie rock underground during that heady period of the 90s alternative rock feeding frenzy the way that Superchunk did. They were committed to remaining indie, both in sound, 
both in aesthetic and in uh, just the way they operated. You know, Mac McCon, of course, famously co-founder of Merge Records, Superchunk, part and parcel with Merge, Mac and his his uh, partner, uh, Laura Balance on bass. Superchunk was a great band, put out a lot of fine records. They were easy to take for granted because they were so prolific and because there were so much other stuff getting so much more attention, selling millions of records throughout the 90s when they were at their busiest have not put out a new record since 2001. Here's to shutting up. They never officially broke up. They were contributing tracks here and there to different compilations, would play the occasional live show, but not nearly as busy as they had been for their first decade. Now here's this return to form. They're back. They've made a new album, the first in nine years. It's called Majesty Shredding. We'll come back and we'll give our reviews and we'll grade it on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. But first, let's hear a tune. This is Crossed Wires by Superchunk on Sound Opinions. Crosswires from Superchunk, their ninth studio album, Majesty Shredding, but first in almost a decade. It's been a long wait, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's been worthwhile because it's a return to form for these guys. I think some of their albums in the later part of the 90s getting a little bit more ornate, kind of losing the plot a little bit in terms of just getting in and getting out, which I think is what they do best. When you define the area of pop rock, these guys did it about as well as anybody when they were on, especially on those first flurry of singles that they released when they were a brand new band. 
And Mac McCon is into his 40s now, but he still sings like a 17-year-old guy with freckles. I mean, he just <laughs> sounds like there's so much enthusiasm in that voice. If anything, his voice is a little higher than it used to be, or at least that I remember. The band's still playing with tremendous enthusiasm. The melodies are there, exuberant tempos. As I said, they don't want to mess around with any kind of ornate flourishes on this record. There are touches of viola here and there, keyboards, horns once in a while, but nothing that will stand in the way of the rush of those guitar-driven pop songs. They do that very, very well. They're not reinventing the wheel here. But if you like this sort of stuff, this is a great super chunk record. I'm going to give it a buy it. You know, Greg, I, I couldn't agree more. I think they were losing the plot for a time when they were beginning to bring in some of the orchestral pop touches. And it must have been hard for Superchunk not to do that because Merge, having been the home for the Elephant Six bands and Arcade Fire more recently, they were having success with a certain sound that was much more elaborate than what they did. I think Mac has remembered here what made Superchunk great. It was that rush of adrenaline and sheer enthusiasm emo in a way that isn't isn't uh, cliched emo. They were emotional, they were enthusiastic, they weren't whining. That's that's mm. that's how I think of Superchunk. There's a moment here where he sings about uh, sinking and swimming is what he used to do. Now he's learned to surf. I'd say they're riding a big wave. Yeah. I would agree. Superchunk, a double buy it for Majesty Shredding. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern is Julia Mullen-Gordon. If she was a krautrock band, a contemporary of Noi, she would be Popol Vuh. Our producers, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, well, they are Amon Duel, too. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. I have to say, he's Guru Guru. <laughs> Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Angel, won't you call me? Could I be the only? Though I am a lost cause. Angel, won't you call me? New messages. This is Glenn from Nashville, Tennessee. My response has to do with John Legend and the Roots album that you guys put on, and I'm not very familiar with this genre of music, and I'm grateful that somebody's bringing it to the forefront, much like uh, one of my favorite musicians, Mark Broussard, did a few years ago with the Say Our Soul album, and um, it was also a collaboration of covers, not done in any way to reinvent the music, but just to bring it to uh, a new generation of listeners, uh, which is what I think the whole point of the John Lynch and, and Roots album was for, and uh, my favorite cutoff of the Mark Broussard album is uh, uh, Harry Hippie. Thanks, guys. Keep doing what you're doing. Now everybody claims that they want the best things out of life huh. But not everyone, not everyone wanna go through the toils and strife Like this particular fellow walks around all day long saying Harry Hippie Hey, this is Mike in Oakland, California. Um, I just listened to the sophomore album uh, show, and I couldn't agree more with the Beastie Boys choice. I still remember my little sister was listening to Licensed Ill, and I wasn't ready for samples. I was 
deeply offended, especially when they abused the Led Zeppelin sample, or the one that I remember was, dan, 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 and then they cut off the good part, and they put in, Darrr. I was like, oh, God, that's crap. And I don't even know how someone got me to listen to uh, Paul's Boutique. But when Paul's Boutique came out, I was stunned how amazing it was. And it basically convinced me that sampled music could be art. And I love it to this day. Thanks, guys. I love the show. Take care. Hi, my name is Travis. I'm calling from Oxnard, California. Uh, I just got finished listening to the the sophomore album success stories, and I, I really enjoyed the cast. I thought that your selections were great. You know, there's tons of great ones, but I love Frank Black's Teenager of the Year, and I know it's like he found another gear with his songwriting. He's been so amazing in so many different times and sounds, but I, I really don't think he's ever been better than he was on Teenager of the Year. Songs like I Want to Live on an Abstract Plane, I, I just... Uh, that that record's amazing. Take care. Bye. I've had it with this town. I never saw those shifting skies. I never saw the ground. All the sunset rise. I want to live on Hey, my name is Emily. If you guys are going to do a show about sophomore albums, I feel like it's only appropriate to talk about Nine Inch Nails' second album, Broken, which is just such a huge maturation from the first one. Pretty hate machine. Every song on that album is good. Thanks again. Great show. Hey, this is Sean from Omaha, and on to your uh, great program about sophomore albums. And I guess his personal favorite would be Fiona Apple's Win the Pawn, just because at that time, with uh, all these other female artists like they came out kind of in the little spare heyday in the uh, late 90s. She was kind of in danger of being lumped into that. A lot of Morissette, Paula Cole, and a lot of people just thought that all she had going was like creepy, uh, sexy video criminal. But then she came out with just this fantastic follow-up, Win the Pawn, and found a lot of critics. So I think that is definitely worth mentioning. Anyway, great show. Thanks. Just a paper bag Hunger hurts And I want them so bad Oh, it kills Cause I know I'm a messy Don't wanna clean up I No more messages To share your opinions on Sound Opinions Call 888-859-1800 We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions From WBEZ Chicago And distributed by PRX